Thank you, Scott. If you would open your Bibles this morning, again, to the book of Hosea, chapter 1. Hosea, chapter 1, as we continue on in our study this morning of the book of Hosea. We want to look this morning at just really uh, introducing a little bit more of the foundation of the book here as it is uh, given to us in verses two through nine, actually verses two through nine, but more or less in verse two, and then we will go back and pick up uh, verses three through nine in more depth in coming weeks, along with other passages uh, in this book as we move through it. Uh, but we want to look this morning at the painful and yet faithful love that God calls Hosea to, and that God Himself demonstrates to his people here uh, in this passage. So Hosea chapter 1, uh, verses 2 through 9 this morning, out of respect for the reading of God's word, would you join me in standing as we read the scripture this morning? Hosea writes, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take yourself a wife of harlotry, And have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Name him Jezreel for yet a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. On that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Then she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Name her Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel that I would ever forgive them. But I will have compassion on the house of Judah and deliver them by the Lord their God and will not deliver them by bow, sword, battle, horses, or horsemen. And when she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said to him, Name him Lo-Ami. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Let's pray. Father, this morning I pray that you would give us yet a deeper understanding, a further glimpse into understanding the faithful love of God for us. God, we understand that you are a holy and a righteous God, a God who cannot tolerate sin. And yet, Father, in your holiness, you are also love. And your love is perfect and it is righteous and it is faithful and it cannot fail and it cannot become, as we are to you, unfaithful. Father, we're so thankful for your faithful love that while you cannot look on our sin through Christ, you have purged our sin. Neither ignoring our sin nor allowing us to perish in our sin. Father, we're thankful for the story of Hosea. We are thankful for this painful marriage that you called him to. To demonstrate to us in ways that we understand and in something that is very real to us. The love of God for wayward and sinful people. So, Father, this morning I pray that we would understand more of what it is. To have you as our God. May we understand more of what it means to benefit from your covenant faithful love to us. 
And Father, may our worship be deepened. May our obedience be increased because of the love you have shown us and because our love for you has grown. Father, keep us faithful. If it were not for you, we understand, Father, all of us would be as Gomer. All of us would be as Israel in Hosea's day, walking away from you, were it not for your faithfulness, keeping us day by day. Father, to you be all praise and honor and glory for the work that you have done in us through your Son, Jesus Christ, and your Spirit. Father, now speak to us through your word. I I plead. May the sermon that the Spirit of God burns in our hearts be far greater than the weak sermon prepared and delivered by human lips. And we pray this all in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, for His ultimate glory alone. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. It's been said that weddings are happy occasions, but marriages not always so although they should be. Weddings are happy occasions, but marriages are not always so, although they should be. And so goes the narrative of the book of Hosea. So goes the story of God's covenant relationship with Israel. He chooses the bride. There is a great celebration of a new union that has been formed. And now Gomer to Hosea and Israel towards her God has broken his heart. And in the place of joy there now exists sorrow that few of us can even begin to imagine. Anger at the unfaithfulness to a spouse, unfaithfulness to a holy God. And because of the infidelity dealing with the consequences that follow. What causes a wedding to be joyful, and yet in the end, tragically, so many marriages described as unhappy? What causes a nation, a group of people named and redeemed and purchased by God to start well and yet fall off and not finish well? There is only one answer, and that answer is sin. Sin comes and destroys what God begins. Sin makes a mockery of the joy that once was. And when God begins His indictment against the nation of Israel and begins to woo them back to Himself as He lovingly and faithfully does at the end of this book, He chooses marriage specifically Hosea's marriage, as the very real picture of his covenant faithful love. Now we know this, don't we, by our own experience, that nothing is more intimate in this life than the marriage relationship. Nothing can bring more joy than a marriage that is right before God and right with each other. Nothing is is greater in this life. And yet nothing is more painful than the severed and broken ties of the marriage relationship. This is Hosea's life. This is what he has been called to personally experience. 
And so as we begin at the beginning and we run through the entire course of this book, Hosea's painful marriage is the backdrop, scars and all, as he prophesies to the nation of Israel, God's chosen wife, if you will, for the sake of illustration. Hosea's marriage would become the symbol, and as a symbol, it needs to be understood uh, carefully in understanding how the principles of his marriage translate to God's dealing with his own people. But we need to understand something this morning of just how intentional God is, how, how specific and purposeful God is in calling Hosea to this marriage with Gomer this morning in verse 2. And that's really what I want to focus on this morning. Helping us to understand the, the, the specificity and the intentionality of what God does in Hosea's life so that we understand more what God does for all of us as we move through the book. So as verse 2 begins and really opens this story up, we find an interesting statement. Would you look at your Bible? Look what the text says. It says, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea. Now, the scripture has some normative ways in which scripture speaks to communicate certain things. One of which is how the Old Testament communicates God speaking or dealing with his people. There are normative ways that mean certain things when we see them. If you allow me, let me explain. There is a general statement of revelation that is given over and over throughout the Old Testament. And it often goes like this. The words of the Lord came to some prophet or some priest. And he said, uh, Jeremiah 37 verse 2 is a, is a good example. But neither he nor his servants nor the people of the land listened to the words of the Lord, which he spoke through Jeremiah the prophet. And, and, and when the Bible speaks of words and plurality like that, it often deals with God's revelation, God's communication with his people over a period of time. So in the case of Jeremiah 37 two, this is taking into account all that Jeremiah had said, all the sermons he preached, not one specific message that he gave them. This has to do with the words of the Lord as they were spoken over time. But I want you to notice something very different in Hosea's account in verse 2, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea. This is a, an altogether different way that God is now communicating. He is not communicating in broad general statements. He is communicating something very specific. It is singular. It is pointed. It is a pointed to a certain time when the word of the Lord first spoke through Hosea, which is to tell us he spoke again through Hosea. But the first thing God says is intentional, it's specific, it is not general, but God wants him to get a specific thing. And so the Lord spoke. And actually, in your, if you were to look at a Hebrew Bible, that first line of verse 2 in your Bible, when the, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea is an entirely different paragraph. And so this serves as an isolated thing to cause us to focus that what... Now listen, this is, this is important. Because we could look at this and we could begin to say, this is problematic what Hosea now does next. But, but God, being specific as he is, wants you to understand, I told Hosea to do what he did. 
And, and, he, and he signifies that by an offset separate paragraph that says this command to go and marry Gomer, a woman of ill repute, was specifically commanded by me. Apart from all the other things I say, this one thing I intentionally wanted him to do. And so God is setting up the rest of the narrative. And so God superintends for Hosea to write and to do intentionally and specifically what follows in the text this morning. And and we obviously know what it is. What is it that God spoke? The Lord said to Hosea, go take to yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry. For the land commits flagrant harlotry forsaking the Lord. We need to understand, remember, again, God is using Hosea's literal marriage. Now, let's just clear one thing up. Some people will come to the book of Hosea and they'll say, oh, this is metaphorical. This is not literal. This is allegorical. That's not true. This is a literal man who really lived at a point in time on this earth, who married a real woman named Gomer, who had moral failure as part of her character. And God says, I'm going to use that real literal relationship to show you how I have interacted with Israel, how I've interacted with my people. And so we we need to understand the symbol here is real, okay? This is not uh, imaginary. It's not metaphorical. It is literal. And so we might be tempted at the very outset to wonder if somehow God's telling Hosea to go and marry a wife of harlotry is not somehow problematic. I mean, it just sounds sinful, doesn't it? No, is Hosea sinful? No. Hosea hasn't done anything, has he? And so, so we're left with this, this, this problem or seeming problem that that just doesn't feel right. Right? Anybody, any one of you, would you counsel your children that way? I can't say that I would, but God did. Because God has a specific purpose, a glorious purpose in doing this. Surely, we say, God would would never intend for anyone to engage in such a painful relationship that was destined for difficulty, right? God wouldn't do that, right? I don't know, maybe he would. No less, look down at the rest of the text. Look at the children's names that come out of this marriage. Uh, This is not happy. Go name your child Lo-Ruhama because I will no longer have compassion. Wow. That's, that's, not, that's not pleasant. That's not easy to swallow. What, what about the last one? Lo-Ami, go name your child Lo-Ami because you are not my people and I am not your God. Remember we talked about last week, names meant something in the Old Testament. That's painful. I mean, surely God would not intend for anyone to be Involved in a relationship like this, this is painful. It's problematic. And while we could look at these and perhaps experience some emotional struggle and wrestling with this, we understand that the whole lesson of the book is wrapped up in this idea of marriage. And if you get what God means by marriage at the beginning here, then you'll get the rest of the book. If you don't get it, you'll never get the rest of the book. 
This is the key that unlocks the rest of the book. And so I want us to help us understand God's purpose in using marriage and a painful marriage at that so that we get what God is doing to demonstrate his faithful character and love. Number one, marriage is intended for completion. It's the first thing we need to understand. God created marriage to complete something. In other words, creation was not complete until God brought about marriage. It was good. It was perfect. But it wasn't as perfect as it could be. And so God makes Eve for Adam and he brings them together and he brings them into this one flesh union. And now God rests. It's done. It could not be improved upon anymore. So marriage is this idea of completion. And we know this because as Adam is reviewing all the animals, it dawns on Adam. Something's missing. Mr. Zebra has Mrs. Zebra. and Mr. Giraffe has Mrs. Giraffe. And I've got nobody. And God says, it's not good. You're right, Adam. It's not good for you to be alone. I will make a helper that is tailor-made, suited to you. You're one side of the puzzle piece. She's the other side of the puzzle piece. And together, you form the complete picture. So God creates Eve for Adam. I saw a really cheesy pickup line this week. It says, a woman walks up to a man and she says, excuse me, I believe I have one of your ribs. It's like, oh, well, that's terrible, right? But, but it's true. God made Eve out of Adam so that Eve would totally complement Adam. They would be one flesh. They were one. Actually, even in the beginning, God made Eve out of Adam. And so it's this beautiful relationship. Adam had a completer. God gives us our spouses to complete a picture. God, listen, God uses the marriage analogy with Israel, redeeming them, saving them to complete the picture of redemption. God couldn't think of a better way to show off his redeeming power than a failed marriage in Hosea's case. God meant marriage to mean reproduction. God meant for man and woman to mean marriage and marriage to mean children as a general rule. This is the normative way that Scripture speaks. It would mean that creation that God had made would be sustained and that the human race would continue on. God meant marriage also to mean enjoyment. God God didn't come and this is not all work and no play. God came and he gave marriage as the place where mankind would find the ultimate satisfaction to their innate God-given desires and drives. It's the place where God says, this is where husband, this is where wife, you are to find ultimate enjoyment in each other. Physically. It's a place where it can be joyfully and righteously fulfilled and must be if we're going to be biblical. And so marriage has these purposes. But I want you to notice the context of marriage in God's mind as he deals with Hosea, as he deals with Israel. The context for the purposes of marriage fall within a specific context. And it is this, that marriage is a covenant. It is a special bond. 
God had one with Israel. If God is trying to communicate uh, his relationship to Israel, which was a covenant relationship, and he's using marriage to do so, we have to understand that marriage is not merely a contract. Marriage is a covenant. And while the, the, the Hebrew word barith was, is never mentioned specifically in the Genesis account, all the intended circumstances and language and imagery is there present when God introduces us to the institution of marriage. In fact, if we read uh, further through the Old Testament, we come there to the end, Malachi chapter 2, uh, verse 14 and 15. Malachi says this, Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. And so God understands the marriage relationship to be one of a covenant nature. Think about a covenant. What do, we don't do covenants in our culture, do we? We have contracts. And because we, we're not a covenant culture, we, we just merely think of everything as a contract, what happens? you got a lot of broken relationships, don't you? Business. I'll just break my contract. I mean, what's the worst that could happen? They'll sue me. And I'll have to, you know, I'll have to pay a fine. I mean, it's no big deal, right? Everything's contractual. It, it, it is, it, it, contracts tend to be uh, manipulative at times and, and benefiting one side or the other. Uh, covenant relationships are such that they live for each other to fulfill the demands of the covenant. And so we don't get covenant very easy because we don't live in a society that uses them. But you have to understand the Bible was all of a covenant culture. Things were done and carried out and enforced by this idea of covenant. The covenant foundation of marriage and thus as a picture of God's covenant relationship with Israel provides an understanding for what follows. The prophecy and ministry of Hosea was the microcosm of his at home, of the macrocosm of God. And we need to tie both of them together. And let me help you begin to do that. When God spoke, when God initiated relationships with His people, He did so through the covenant. Genesis 12, what does He do with Abraham? Abraham, I'm going to establish just any kind of relationship with you? No, I'm going to establish a covenant with you. And this covenant is binding, and this covenant is eternal, and this covenant will not be broken. In Exodus chapter 19, and we'll come back to this later on this morning, but in Exodus chapter 19, God institutes a relationship with the nation of Israel based on a covenant, right? And God says, I'm going to covenant to you to bless you and to do all these things for you. Israel, what do you say to that? And Israel says, we gladly enter into this covenant. In fact, they say to him, what? All these things which you have spoken, we will do. God says, fine. The new covenant, as God looks forward to the redemption of Jesus Christ in Jeremiah chapter 31, God gives us a new covenant that supersedes all of the covenants that had been given before. And so God repeatedly works 
through the covenant structure. But because marriage is a covenant, and because covenants cannot be broken, and because there is great cost when there is a violation of the covenant, you remember uh, in near Eastern thought, when a covenant was made, something was killed. There was always blood involved with the covenant. An animal was cut in two and the pieces would be laid out and the parties who were entering into the covenant would walk through the pieces of that slain animal together saying, if I break the covenant, then let what happened to this animal happen to me. In fact, you know that scholars have unearthed ritualistic sites in the Middle East where the fathers had made covenant regarding their children being brought into a marriage and the fathers agreeing that if either one of my children violates their their vows to this covenant, I agree to be killed. And they've actually found remains of males that were killed in, in a ritualistic Ceremony because a covenant had been violated. And so in the East, in the Eastern mind, covenants have always been extremely serious. And there was a high cost for the violation of such covenants. And so because of that, we have certain natural expectations, don't we? Because God has hardwired the marriage covenant, especially into our hearts and our souls and our Every fiber of our being. And the first thing we expect in marriage is that this is exclusive. Anybody here who has a non-exclusive marriage? Not any of us. I mean, my wife is not your wife. And I will fight to the death to protect the exclusivity of my wife being my wife. She does not belong to anyone else. And and that's just natural, isn't it? I mean, as kids grow up and and they get to that age where they begin to to realize the other gender and and they they begin to develop fascinations with with, uh, people of the opposite sex and and, and they begin to get into that and then they find somebody else likes the same person they like, what happens? There's innate jealousy, isn't there? That's mine! Don't you, don't you, you got no right to talk to him or her? And and there's this innate understanding as God, those drives towards marriage, they're exclusive by nature. We don't share. That's the way it should be. Marriage is exclusive, period. And because of it, it it is exclusive. It, It makes adultery all the more disgusting, doesn't it? It makes what happens to Hosea and it makes what Israel did to God all the more disgusting because we understand this is exclusive. It's not open-ended. As Michael Barrett points out in his commentary on Hosea that in adultery there has not only been a breach of trust but a breach of a solemn covenant of which there will be consequences. God made Adam for Eve and Eve for Adam alone. But what else do we naturally expect from a covenant relationship like marriage? We expect jealousy. Do you know what? It's it's okay for me to be jealous of my wife. It's okay for you to be jealous of your wife and wife of your husband. We, We protect them. 
We, we should. We should guard them. A man who's... This is my wife. I mean, what's, what's the big... He's not, he's not a man. God is jealous of his bride Israel. God himself, in the right way, can is righteously jealous. And so ought we to be in our marriage as Hosea was in his. Listen to the words of these passages. Exodus 25, You shall not worship them, speaking of idols, or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am what kind of God? A jealous God. Exodus 34, 14, For you shall not worship any other God. For the Lord, listen to this, whose name is jealous. Is a jealous God. What's the names of God? Elohim, He's the strong creator. El Rafa, He's the healer. All of these great names of God. Do we teach our children? One of God's names, given in Scripture by God, is jealous. That's one of His names. Do we think about that? As we are tempted to stray from him, do we think about the fact that, wait a minute, his name is Jeff. I'm really quick. I'm really quick to, to claim the names of God as the provider and the healer and the creator and the savior and all these things. But what about claiming his name as a jealous God? So we got to have him all or none, right? He can't be divided. And so here's God. He's a jealous God. Numbers 5, verses 14 through 30, dealing with uh, what happens when uh, someone is found in adultery in the law. If a spirit of jealousy overcomes him, speaking of a man whose wife has strayed in, he is jealous of his wife when she has defiled herself. Or if a spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife when she has not defiled herself, or when a spirit of jealousy comes over a man and he is jealous of his wife, he shall then make the woman stand before the Lord and the priest apply this law to her. Deuteronomy 4.24, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Song of Solomon Chapter 8, verse 6, put me like a seal over your heart, Solomon says, like a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death, jealousy is as severe as Sheol. It's good for a man to be jealous of his wife, of her love, of her affection, of his affection for her. We naturally expect the intendant Reality of jealousy to be part of a covenant relationship. But then third, we expect faithfulness. Marriage, when we all said our vows to our spouse on that day, however long ago it might have been, we expected one another to be faithful. None of us married with the notion or the idea that I am marrying for unfaithfulness. Did we? We all expected that was just natural. If you're marrying me, then you know that I expect you to remain faithful to me and I understand that I am to remain faithful to you. And we stand before God and before the witnesses and we declare that. We don't marry expecting infidelity in that relationship. So marriage carries an understanding of exclusivity, of jealousy, of faithfulness. And so now, with that as a backdrop, we move to Hosea and Gomer. And we look at the command, the specific command that God gave Hosea to do this. Go and take for yourself a wife of harlotry. 
From the very beginning, Hosea had a problem marriage. I wonder for us, what would it have been like if for for those days and weeks and months when we first met our spouse and we began to pray, God, is she the one? God, is he the one? God, make it clear. God, God, speak to me. Give me direction. Give me wisdom in this relationship. I wonder if God had come to us and revealed all the sin in the heart of the person that we were praying about. I wonder how many of us would actually have gone through with the wedding. And yet, here is Hosea. And God comes to Hosea and he says, Hosea, you see Gomer? I want you to go marry her. And let me just tell you about her character or lack thereof. She is a woman of infidelity. Whoa! And God says, I'm going to reveal it up front to you what she is like, but I'm going to tell you, not suggest to you, but tell you to go marry her. Hosea had a problem marriage from the very beginning and he knew it. He didn't go into this marriage blind. God clearly spelled out how it was going to be. And so as we read this command, we're once again struck with the sense of gross impropriety that this seems to indicate. What? After all, I mean, isn't it God who is so precise that He has addressed certain things about this, it doesn't it seem like something in our mind says that especially for, for someone in spiritual leadership, that, that, their, that, that their wife shouldn't be like this. And so we do. We go back and we read passages like Leviticus 21.7 in God's instruction to the priest. He says, They shall not take a woman who is profaned by harlotry. Well, that's a problem. I mean, we understand Hosea is not a priest, but he is a prophet. And priests could not marry a woman like Gomer. God would not allow that to be. The high priest had further instructions in Leviticus 21, 13. He shall take a wife in her virginity, a, a pure wife. She's never been married. This, this was God's expectation for spiritual leadership in Israel. And it seems quite clear. God doesn't cut any. There's no gray area here. God is black or white. This is the way it has to be. But what about Hosea? How could God then tell a spiritual leader to go and do something that previously for other spiritual leaders he said not to do? How does that work? How do we take God's command here? Well, two schools of thought come about. And again, the first one we just reject outright. This was figurative. That the God wasn't really telling him that. And that, that, that school of thought comes out of liberal reactionist theology and theory. And so just let's just throw the first one out. That's not an option. This is a literal story. So in a literal category, then how do we deal with this seeming incongruity between the two? Well, there are several options here this morning that we have to attend to if we're going to get the rest of the story. Number one, some people say that the adultery that Gomer was committing was spiritual, not physical. 
Well, we can quickly uh, do away with this because as we move down through the text, we see that she begins to bear children that don't seem to be related to Hosea. Well, that doesn't come about just because somebody went and worshipped an idol, right? I mean, this is a real act of infidelity that bore real consequences in these children. And we'll discuss how that all unfolds momentarily. And so I think this is a really poor way to try to interpret this, that, that her infidelity was spiritual, not physical. And, and even more than that, would it really help if Hosea stood before the people and said, oh yeah, I want you to worship Yahweh, but my wife, she's not a believer. I mean, think about it. You're going to call a new pastor to your church. Pastor, we want you to come. Where's your wife? Oh, she's not a she's not a Christian. Now she she's she's involved in the occult or New Age or or idol worship. You'd go, ah, it's a, that, that's not going to work for us, right? So so really, even that argument for Hosea, oh, she was she was spiritually unfaithful to God. That's all it's saying. No, it couldn't. We couldn't go there either, right? So then there's a second view. What about this? How could he marry a woman of this character? Scholars call this the proleptic view. And this view holds that at the fact, uh, at the time of their marriage, she was pure, but would later become a harlot. That, that, that Hosea is writing the book, and he records this section of the book last. And she's already his wife at this point, and so he is speaking of his wife, the unfaithful one that happened after their marriage. Just like I would, I didn't know Nicole when she was a child. We met later in life in college. But, but when I speak of her, I speak of my wife when she was seven. No, was she my wife when she was seven? No. But she's my wife now, so I speak of her whole life as being my wife, right? And so th this view would say, okay, she wasn't actually a harlot when he married her, but, but that was forward-looking. This is something that would occur later, and he's just going back and recording everything that happened. He's not transcribing this live play-by-play. And, and this, this theory certainly bears some promise as to how we would explain God commanding a man in spiritual leadership to do something that he's commanded others not to do. But very clearly, God says to him, go marry a harlot. Not she's going to be one. Go marry one. So, I want to offer you a third alternative to explain this text. A hybrid view that takes into account both the literal command and the spiritual dimension that is so involved throughout the rest of the book with Israel's relationship to God. Now, I believe that this view, that we'll call the hybrid view, as does Dr. Barrett, is the most gospel-centered view that has been offered. It's the most faithful textually to the literal words in Scripture, and it is most faithful to the theological work of God and the character of God as revealed in His Word. Now, y'all just hang on with me just for a minute. God uses, again, specific words. Notice in the text He says, Go take to your wife, uh, your, 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 as a wife, a harlot. 
The, the, the Hebrew word is zuninim. This is a word that points out the, 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 the idea of, of prostitution. It's derived from that root word. Uh, it refers to ones whose lifestyle and action are consistent with that. But it's not the main word that signifies someone who does those kinds of things. That word is zona. And so it's related, but it is not the exact word. And if you look up the word zuninim in scripture, in a Hebrew dictionary, it literally means this, one who is inclined to fornicate. One who is inclined to do these types of things. One who is inclined to be unfaithful. If you look at other, take that word and look it up as it's used in the rest of the Old Testament, it is used metaphorically of Israel as they were engaged in infidelity with Baal and against God. And so this view of saying that there is some merit to saying she wasn't yet engaged in the full-fledged act, but she was in her heart a woman who was bent to do that at some point, begins to give us these critical components. Number one, it maintains Hosea's integrity. It maintains the word of God's integrity that he was not doing something that contradicted the law. Secondly, Gomer is still, as God has called her, a zuninim. She's still a harlot. She is in her heart now and will become one. While outwardly pure at the time of marriage, she was inwardly already defiled because her heart was bent that way. And so Hosea, as he marries, marries a woman who was not yet fully acting on the depravity of her own heart, but she was inwardly enjoying it. She couldn't wait for the time. Someone once asked Dr. MacArthur about a man in ministry who fell into immorality. They said, how did it happen? How could somebody like that do something so terrible? How could he walk off on his wife? How could he do that? And here was Dr. MacArthur's simple reply. Because years of preparation finally met opportunity. His heart had been going there all along. He allowed his mind to go there. And then when the situation was just right, he acted on what he had rehearsed thousands of times before in his mind. That is Gomer. I believe that is what is going on here. And now we move to the problem of not only the marriage, of marrying someone who is so unfaithful like that, but we move to the consequences. Three children are born. Look at the text. The first one is obviously the son of Hosea. And she bore him, Hosea, a son, and his name is Jezreel. Child one is explicitly stated as being fathered by Hosea. But child two and three in the text are not mentioned specifically as child one is as being related to him. They are just mentioned that they are products of their mother. And so it would make sense that in the timing of the narrative that these children were the byproduct of her immorality. Listen, she was faithful from the beginning with Hosea. Immediately they're married. She conceives. She bears him a son. That takes time. 
It's like nine months to be exact. And then she weans him off. And it is during this period of time that now she begins to go out and act on her wicked heart. And she bears two more children, the names of whom are not linked to the prophet. Look over in chapter 2, verse 4, would you? It would appear that he is now speaking to Jezreel. Okay? Look at the text. Say to your brothers, Ami, lo Ami, and your sister, Ruhama, contend with your mother. Jezreel's not addressed here, just the other two. And he says, Go. Speak to them, say, contend with your mother, contend. She's not my wife. I am not her husband. Is he divorced? No. But what he is saying is the marriage covenant has been violated. The exclusivity is gone. But look down in verse 4. He says to Jezreel to deliver this message. Say to her, also, I will have no compassion on her children. For they are children of harlotry. It would appear that Jezreel, the son of Jose, is delivering a message to Lo-Ami and Lo-Ruhama, and he is saying to them, go tell your mom, I'll have nothing to do with them because they're not mine. They are children of harlotry. They are not mine. And so Hosea, it appears, has been commanded by God to go and marry a woman who will bear children that she will then bring into his house that he will be expected to take care of that are not his. All happening while he is her husband. This is a difficult place. This is a tragic story. God had called him to have them as his own. Grammatically, they belong to the antecedent, the wife of harlotry in chapter 2, verse 4. If you go on down in the text in chapter 2, verse 5, grammatically, they belong to the wife of harlotry, and here's how they were born, because she has taken part in harlotry, verse 5. Because she has played that part. Her infidelity has created a seemingly insurmountable set of circumstances for a man who loved God. What did Hosea do? Nothing. We can honestly, I think, look at this story and say there are not two sides to the story. There's one side. Hosea loved God. Hosea was consumed by doing what was right in the sight of God. Hosea had a burning desire for faithfulness to God. He was a husband who was loving and obedient and cherishing and doting and he did the right things and she did what she did not because of him, but because of her. How insurmountable, how heartbreaking for Hosea. Now we move into the Symbolic purpose of their marriage. Go back to chapter 1. He says, go and take your wife. Go take yourself a wife of harlotry. Have children of harlotry. You see, God commands him that Lo-Ami and Lo-Ruhama, they're yours. 
You're to take them too. You're to take the consequences of her harlotry. And then he gives the reason. I'm telling you to do this because the land commits flagrant. What does it mean to be flagrant? You meant to do it. This is premeditated, capital infidelity. I didn't just fall into it. I didn't just try. I intended to do it from day one. I plotted how I was going to do it. It is flagrant. And they have forsaken the Lord. God says to Hosea, Hosea, I want you to live in this painful marriage so that all the nations can understand my special relationship to Israel. God's ultimate purpose in having Hosea live through this nightmare of a marriage was to prove Himself faithful. To prove Himself loving toward people who were absolutely faithless and wicked. But God had set His covenant seal on the nation of Israel and He would not abandon her. And Hosea had set His covenant faithful love on Gomer and He would not abandon her. Hosea didn't just preach about that kind of love. Hosea lived that kind of love. No one in his day could accuse him of not understanding. Pastor Hosea, you just don't understand. And he says, really? Yeah, I do. I I knew when I married her, this is the way it was going to be. But you just don't understand what it's like. Yeah, I do. I get it. He understood. The sin of Israel was not by omission. It was intentional. It was knowing just like his own wife's. So in conclusion this morning, all that we have discussed, let us understand some foundational lessons that we need to leave here with this morning so that the rest of the book falls into its proper place. Number one, God knew about and continued to know about the wayward tendencies of Israel before he ever called Abraham. Now I want to cause your idea of the sovereignty of God to absolutely explode right now. We can sit here in our sterile clinical way and say God's all knowing. But when God called Abraham the idolater out of the land of the Ur of the Chaldees and he said to Abraham, I will make of you a great and mighty nation. As God is uttering those words to Abraham, God was under no illusion that there would not be a golden calf. That there would not be child sacrifice in the valley of Jezreel. God knew every stinking sin, every idol, every act of sacrifice, every act of false worship that Israel would ever commit. And God says, you're mine anyway. How big is God? God is big enough. His redeeming love is big enough that He sees us. He knows us. He knows how wicked we are. He knows how wicked we will be. And He still says, you are going to be my people and I'm going to love you regardless. That is amazing. 
That is earth shattering. Second, born out of sheer love, God initiated this covenant. Abraham didn't come to God and say, God, I'd like to sign up to be on your team. God, I'd like to be your chosen person. God, I'd like to be the head of your chosen people. Abraham did not initiate it. Abraham had no regard for God. And God comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, listen, I am going to initiate a covenant with you. You know, we're a lot like Israel. There's a lot of Gomer in all of us. When it comes to our relationship with the Lord. How unfaithful we have been. How many times have we sinned against God? And what has God ever done to us except come to us? According to Romans 5.8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What's He ever done to you except love you? Except initiate a relationship with you? Nothing. Yet how faithless and unfaithful we are. He pursues us. Not when we get out of sin, but while we're still in sin. One writer said this, marriage is a legally binding covenant, but it is also a bond of love. God's covenant faithfulness is a binding covenant. He could not break it. And He will never break it. But He doesn't do so in some sterile, legal way going, well, I wish I could get out of this. Why did I ever sign that? No, He joyfully says, although my heart is broken by the pain that has been caused by their unfaithfulness to me, I am remaining in this covenant because of my binding love for them. Exodus 19, again, we've mentioned it earlier, verses 7 and 8. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. And all the people together said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. God initiated that. God sustains it. When we get to heaven, we will not look back on our life and say we were faithful to God because we love God. We will say we were faithful to God. We were here. We have made it home, not because of us, but because of a God who has been faithful in spite of our faithlessness. Jeremiah 2, verses 2 and 3. Listen to the words of God through the prophet Jeremiah. He goes to Jerusalem and he says to them, Thus says the Lord, I remember concerning you the devotion of your youth, the love of your betrothals. You're following after me in the wilderness through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first of his harvest. All who ate of it became guilty. Evil came upon them, declares the Lord. Oh, what love he had in spite of their own lack of faith, their lack of fidelity. 
Remember, it was in the wilderness that the golden calf was raised. That they complained and they murmured and they grumbled against God. And God says, I'm not looking at that. I'm looking at the beginning. I'm looking back at that time you left me. At that time that you said to Moses, we will serve the Lord. That's because of his covenant faithful love to them. Hosea chapter 2, verse 15. God, speaking of Israel, although they have sinned, played the part of the harlot, He says, then I will give her the vineyards from there, and the valley of Achor is the door of hope, and she, she will sing there as in the days of her youth. It'll be like it used to be. But the third thing we need to take away this morning, and the last thing is this. Because we are in a covenant relationship with God as we are in our marriage. He, like our spouse, has every right to be jealous for us and disdain our unfaithfulness. We look at God as this God of love and we say, surely he cannot be wrath. But when you look At the rest of the text, if you don't believe that he has a right to be jealous, then you will ultimately fall away when he says things like this. I will no longer have compassion on them. And you'll fall away when he says, you are not my people and I am not your God. Well, he can't say that because he's love. No, he can say that because we are in a covenant relationship and he is jealous for us and he can express that jealousy in any way that he pleases. Brothers and sisters, we've all been in places where we have been broken by our sin because we have been burdened with the weight of God's holiness. And we see our sin as heinous as it is. And we are broken by by the, the hammer that at times has to come and crush the rock. But this morning, can I tell you something that should break us as much as any hammer coming upon the rock? And that is the still, small, faithful, loving whisper of a God who keeps His covenant. We should be broken by the weight of un failing love that in spite of our faithlessness God has remained faithful let us take that lesson away as we begin to watch Hosea's love for Gomer and God say that is how I loved Israel that is how I love my people may God help us may God's spirit nail these truths to our hearts Let's pray. Father, you are faithful. We do not deserve. We have not merited. We have not initiated anything that has provoked or deserved covenant faithful love like you have. Like you demonstrate to us, on us, for us all of the time. And Father, May it not be said of our lives 
that the time they came to Christ like a, like a wedding was a happy time. But since that time, not so much so. The marriage has been rocky. The marriage has been difficult. Father, may we go back to our first love as John wrote to the church at Ephesus. Go back to your first love. Repent of the idolatry. Repent of the faithfulness. Because God, as a faithful covenant-keeping God, has not abandoned you. Be broken by that. Return to Him. For He is loved with everlasting love. Father, may the weight of Your love for us crush us. As ultimately Hosea's love crushed Gomer's infidelity. As he wooed her back to himself. May the love of God woo us now to repent of sin and follow Him. Father, You are great. This absolutely defies our being able to put it in categories or words sufficient enough to do Your glory, Your majesty, the justice that it deserves. So, Father, suffice it to say, thank You. We love You. We attribute everything that we are to You. Make us and keep us faithful. May our relationship with you be one that causes you no pain, but only joy. We pray this in the precious name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.